Good morning. Uh, how many of you are familiar with Georgia O'Keeffe, right? the, the famous painter, mostly famous for painting large-scale pictures of flowers, very up close. Certainly, you've probably seen at least one or two of her works. Well, she, she says this. She says, a flower is relatively small. Everyone has associations with a flower. The idea of flowers, you, you put your hand out to touch the flower, lean forward to smell it, maybe touch it with your lips almost without thinking, she says, or give it to someone to please them. Still, in a way, she says, nobody sees a flower, really. It is so small, we haven't time and to see takes time, like to have a friend takes time. So I said to myself, I'll paint what I see. What the flower is to me, I'll paint it big, and they will be surprised into taking time to look at it. Most people in the city rush around, so they have no time to look at a flower. I want them to see it, whether they want to or not. I will make busy New Yorkers take time to see what I see of flowers. End quote. She said this in 1939. In 2016, I was one of those busy New Yorkers that she was talking about. I was busy working two jobs. I was stressed out about trying to make ends meet because I was paying an absurd amount of our income on rent. I was inundated by the noise and hecticness of the city, the hustle, which is somehow equal parts energizing and exhausting. So getting groceries, everything there was a hassle. Getting groceries was like an Olympic event. The first time that I went to Trader Joe's there, uh, the line was around the block and that wasn't just to get in. Once you got in, you were still in line through every aisle. It zigzagged. So you had to like, get your items as you were in line. And if you forgot one, that was a couple aisles back. Too bad. It, so even thinking about getting groceries for the week was this stress-inducing, anxious moment. And, and it wasn't just me. My wife was stressed out, too. And so we, we planned... A restful Saturday. We are going to have a restful Saturday in New York. We are going to drive just the three miles south of our apartment to the Brooklyn Museum, which was hosting a show of Georgia O'Keeffe's. Um, and so we were really excited. Well, halfway there, going through a green light intersection, boom, T-boned. Car spins, you know, I don't know, 360 degrees, something like that. Ears ringing. I open the door, come out a bit dizzy and, of course, disoriented, uh, screaming, Sarah, are you okay? The car hit her side. Um, thank God, both mostly okay. She had a couple cuts. She had much, much worse whiplash than I did because she was on the side of impact. So an ambulance comes and, and she goes to the hospital I had to stay by the car. 
for the report. So what I thought was going to be a restful Saturday ended up with me standing on the sidewalk in a neighborhood I didn't know by myself waiting for the police to come while my wife is being driven away in an ambulance. So instead of rest, my head was filled with worry. My body sore from impact and heavy with anxiety. Well, eventually the report was written up. I somehow found a way to the hospital that Sarah was at, got the car towed because it was totaled, um, and got some lunch. Some friends picked us up from the hospital and, and got us some lunch. And I thought, okay, let's go home. Let's take an Uber or a taxi. Let's go home and just, I don't know, lie in bed and watch TV the rest of the day. But Sarah said, we already bought these tickets to the museum. Let's go to the museum. So we did. And we looked at flowers. Somehow God partnered with Georgia O'Keeffe in making even busy New Yorkers like Sarah and I have to slow down and take time to see flowers. Well, who better to bridge the gap from Brooklyn to Iowa City than Lena Dunham? I don't know if you know who she is. She's, she's an actress. She's the one who created this show on HBO called Girls that as a pastor I cannot recommend that you watch, but... It is a very interesting commentary on millennial life. Anyways, the show mostly takes place in Brooklyn, but in one semester, she goes to the writer's workshop in Iowa. So it kind of, it bridges these two worlds together. And uh, Lena, who plays the main character, Hannah, on the show, in this article where she's talking about her own personal life, she says, I don't remember a time not being anxious. And you kind of get this from the show as well, if you ever watch it. Her character is very anxious. She goes on to say how she remembers the feelings of anxiety all the way back from when she was four years old. And it continued on in her life. In the 10th grade, she says that she actually missed 74 days of school that year because of a debilitating fear of leaving the house. It's not just Lena. The New York Times put out this article in 2017, and the title is great. It's titled, Prozac Nation is Now the United States of Xanax. And in it, they speak with someone named Sarah Fader. She's a 37-year-old social media consultant. And she, she shares this story about how she had a friend coming into town. She texted the friend. The friend didn't respond for 24 hours, and so she sort of spiraled out of control with anxiety. Maybe my friend's not coming, maybe, maybe she, she's bringing more friends, and I don't know if I'm going to have enough space for those friends, I don't know what to do. So she tweeted, as many do in their anxiety, and she put the hashtag, this is what anxiety looks like, uh, which ended up starting this big trend in 2017. It started trending, took over Twitter for a little bit, where everyone was sort of hashtagging, this is what anxiety looks like. And what it showed was that it's not just Sarah Fader who struggles with anxiety. And in the article, she says, if you're a human being living in 2017, 
so three years ago, and you're not anxious, there's something wrong with you. That was in 2017. That was before the pandemic. That was before, and it was after a very contentious election, but before the even more contentious election we're kind of still going through. And the even heightened racial unrest in our country. So I don't think I have to do too much to diagnose our time as an anxious one, as one filled with worry. But it is. And this is the final week and culmination in this three-part series that I'm calling a misuse of the imagination, Christ's invitation from worry to wonder. And we started the series with Martha, with that famous story of Mary and Martha, Martha being distracted and fragmented with much serving. And she misses out on the Christ who is in her midst. But then she comes to Jesus with her worry and she says, Lord, do you not care? And then last week, the disciples, they follow Jesus into this boat across the sea at night. And there's a storm of chaos that's threatening to drown them. Well, they approach Jesus sleeping in the boat. They wake him and ask very similarly to Martha, Martha, uh, teacher, do you not care? And so in our very much so worried and full of anxious age. Can you relate at all to Martha and the disciples? I mean, does it seem to you at times like God has sort of left you to figure out how to deal with your anxiety and worry on your own? In our new Testament lesson today, uh, Jesus addresses this topic head on. I mean, The past two weeks, we looked at these stories, these narratives that deal with anxiety and worry. Well, here, Jesus, in the middle of this Sermon on the Mount, he just addresses it head on in this teaching. In the Sermon on the Mount, which are essentially these teachings on a new way to be human. Jesus provides an alternative to worry, beauty. Georgia O'Keeffe, again, she wrote in the 1930s that it was hard to get people to take the time to truly look at a flower. She made it her mission, essentially, to magnify the beauty of the flower so that everyone who comes in contact with one of her paintings is slowed down by the surprising intricacies of creation. And thank God for Georgia O'Keeffe. It's just personally uh, my own life on that Saturday after that accident, being able to find God in the folds of a flower. Well, also in the 1930s, another woman, the French philosopher and mystic Simone Weil, she said that there are three ways, three primary ways people are drawn to God. She said through affliction, through religious practices, and finally, by the experience of beauty. Now, this is also in the 30s. She says that the first two, 
have been virtually eliminated from modern life. There's significantly less suffering in the world than there was. And there's also significantly less people interested in religious practices. So she says that among wealthier cultures, she was writing from France, Europe, and particularly in the U.S., she argues the beauty of the world is almost the only way by which we can allow God to penetrate us. Again, she says the beauty of the world is almost the only way by which we can allow God to penetrate us. And just like Georgia O'Keeffe and Simone Weil, Jesus says to us today, look at the birds in the air. They do not reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly father feeds them. He says, see how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. Look and see. Notice, consider, pay attention You see, Jesus wants us to slow down and like O'Keefe to truly see the flowers, to consider the lilies. For Jesus, the unnecessary beauty of a flower points to a God who creates in abundance. There's more beauty than there needs to be. Jesus is saying this flower like grass, it's just going to burn up and and be gone. It's going to be gone in who knows how long, a few months, a few weeks. What's the point? The goodness of creation to Jesus, even marred by the fall, communicates the goodness of God. If we could see flowers the way Jesus sees flowers, I think worry would begin to melt away. All of this is about being able to see. It's an exercise of the imagination. Well, the problem also just a little caveat. I have a lot of quotes in this sermon today, more than usual, but I think they're all really good. So bear with me, enjoy them. If you like any of them, let me know. I'll send it to you. You know, you don't have to buy the whole book. Okay. Exercise of the imagination. The problem says theologian and pastor Samuel Wells. He says the problem is that the human imagination is simply not large enough to take in all that God is and has to give. We are overwhelmed. God's inexhaustible creation, limitless grace, relentless mercy, enduring purpose, fathomless love, it is just too much to contemplate, assimilate, and understand. This, he says, is the language of abundance. And if humans turn away from contemplating God's creation, it is sometimes out of a misguided but understandable sense of self-protection, a preservation of identity in the tidal wave of glory. He says the problem is that the human imagination is simply not large enough to take in all that God is and has to give. So if our imagination isn't even big enough to take in all that God is, you can see why Jesus 
is upset if we're wasting space of that imagination on worry. And worry really is a problem of the imagination. It's, again, a misuse of the imagination. Jesus ends this whole teaching uh, in verse 34 with this, this famous brilliant line. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. To imagine the possibilities of the future is a waste of our imagination, says Jesus. Do not worry about what's going to happen tomorrow. It's a waste of your creativity. I mean, think of all the creative energy it takes to think up different what-if outcomes in our life. What if the pandemic goes on for another five years? What if the university loses important and crucial funding in the next year? What if our son doesn't like football and wants to become an artist? Or what if our son doesn't like art and wants to play football? What if I get socks again for Christmas? What if Target or Hy-Vee is out of my favorite crackers? Or if Ben and Jerry's isn't on sale tomorrow? What if, what if, what if? All these thoughts, they they pull us out of this moment, right? Because we start thinking about the next, the next, the next, the next. We get pulled out of the present. And the present is the only place where we can actually experience love and connection with others or with God. So this is a problem. It's also why Jesus, he doesn't simply say, hey, stop worrying. Put your imagination to rest, as if we could do that. He shows us what it's like to open our imaginations to wonder. He commands us not to worry, not to be anxious, because it robs us of the wonder of life. He invites us to see birds and flowers as symbols and signposts of God's providence and goodness. He calls us to develop, there's this theological world, word called a sacramental imagination. It's a way of seeing the creator in and through all of his creation. Think about the way that we see Christ in the bread and the wine. So we know that ordinary matter, you know, things, they matter and they can actually communicate Grace, bread and wine, becomes this condensed way that we can learn to see God in all things. John Calvin puts it this way. Quote, let us not be ashamed to take pious delight in the works of God, open and manifest in this most beautiful theater, he says of the world. There is no spot in the universe wherein you cannot discern at least some sparks of his glory. You cannot in one glance survey this most beautiful system of the universe in its wide expanse without being completely overwhelmed by the boundless force of its brightness. The psalmist says it like this. This is a selection of verses from Psalm 104. Praise the Lord, my soul. 
Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the skies like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes the winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. The birds of the sky nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things, both large and and small. The psalmist there has a sacramental imagination. So Jesus essentially says to his disciples, do not use your imaginations to create negative possible futures, as if by doing so you could actually change your future. All that does is rob you of this present moment. Instead, he says, use the present moment to become aware of your surroundings. And in that moment, using that same imagination you would use for worry, look for the beauty around you and see that God is actually present and caring for you. Instead of using your imagination to forecast the unknown, use it to be with the known, the God who intimately knows and reveals himself to be known as well. Now, this is one of my favorite scriptures. I love these scriptures from Jesus. But there's a problem. I'm also a bit of a foodie, which you can probably tell from my, you know, stature. But I also think that fashion matters, which you maybe can't tell from the way I dress. But anyways, I care about food and fashion. And Jesus seems to be kind of hating on him here. What do I make of the fact that Jesus says not to care about what I will eat or what I will wear? When I go on vacation, I plan it based around where I want to eat. And sometimes I go to stores to buy what I would like to wear on that vacation. I mean, is he saying that food and clothes don't matter at all? Should we just take sort of nutritional supplements instead of wasting time chewing? You know, are taste buds superfluous? Is fashion, with all its varied fabrics and patterns and silhouettes, all a waste of time? Should we just dress for comfort's sake? Sweatpants only from here on out. Well... No, you know, I actually believe that what we wear and what we eat matter, even to Jesus. I mean, you can't read the text with with truly critical eyes and not see that he says God's going to provide these things to you. God knows that they matter to you. Because they too 
They can communicate the same beauty and goodness that a sparrow or a lily can. God uses culture as well as the raw creation to communicate his goodness. But like all of God's good creation, right? The problem is these things can become distorted by becoming ends in themselves. That's when we worry about these things, when they're an end in themselves. That's what Jesus is critiquing here. Because to worry about these things sucks out their potential to actually become means of grace and sort of proddings to worship. Um, There's this great Orthodox theologian named Alexander Schmemann, and he talks about a sacramental imagination. He, um, He plays off the word Eucharist, which the Greek is Eucharistia, it means thanksgiving. So Eucharist, what some churches call communion or the Lord's table, it actually means thanksgiving. And he says, we were created to live lives of thanksgiving to God for his glorious creation. So I warned you, lots of quotes. Here's another big one. Try and take it in. If not, ask for it. This one is so good. He says, humanity has loved the world, but as an end in itself and not as transparent to God. It seems natural for us to experience the world as opaque and not shot through with the presence of God. It seems natural not to live a life of thanksgiving for God's gift of a world. It seems natural not to be Eucharistic. The world is a fallen world because it has fallen away from the awareness that God is all in all. Things treated merely as things in themselves destroy themselves because only in God have they any life. The world of nature cut off from the source of life is a dying world. Listen to this. For one who thinks food itself is the source of life, eating is communion with death. Food itself is dead. It is life that has died and it must be kept in refrigerators or it rots away like a corpse, he says. The original sin is not primarily that man has disobeyed God. The sin is that he ceased to be hungry for God and God alone. He ceased to see his whole life depending on the whole world as a sacrament of communion with God. Jesus is concerned about our worrying because it shows that we have cut good things off from their source. Jesus says, see the flowers of the field. Truly see them in all of their beauty and splendor, and they will lead you to see God as provider. He says, as the abundant source. Jesus wants to re-enchant our imaginations so that the whole world, bread, wine, birds, and flowers, all of it, encompasses his glory. And finally, Jesus tells us to seek first the kingdom, to practice living with kingdom eyes, which allow beauty to penetrate 
all that we see. Today, it says this on the bulletin. If you're familiar with the church calendar, the liturgical year, you know that today is called Christ the King Sunday. It's the last Sunday of the liturgical year. So next Sunday is kind of like New Year's Day in the church calendar. We begin with Advent. This is the end of it. And it kind of comes from Matthew 28, 18, where Jesus begins his great commission and he says, all power or all authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. He is the king of the universe. Uh, in a lot of traditions, they have collects, which are these prayers that everyone pray together. And collect means basically it's our voices collected in, in unity. And so a lot of churches around the, the world today are going to be praying this prayer on Christ the King Sunday. Almighty and everlasting God, whose will it is to restore all things in your well-beloved Son, the King of kings and Lord of lords, mercifully grant that the peoples of the earth, divided and enslaved by sin, may be freed and brought together under his most gracious rule, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Jesus Christ, who is king, is restoring all things. And that's because in God's kingdom, in the places where Jesus Christ reigns in our lives, that's God's kingdom, all things fall into their proper place. They're all becoming restored. Yeah, you can clap to that. All citizens of this kingdom, they know that they are taken care of. You know, in God's kingdom, flowers and birds, they point to a king who is the sovereign lover of his creation, providing in abundance. In this kingdom, what ifs are replaced with worship and worry is outweighed by wonder? Let's pray. You might want to take a few deep breaths. Just recognize that we are, we are citizens of that kingdom. Heavenly Father, King of kings, we delight this morning in your sovereignty. We delight, Lord, not just because you have power and you are sovereign, we delight, Lord, not just because you are kind and good and full of love. We delight because you are the only king who embodies both of those. You are the only one who is fully love and yet actually has the power and the authority to make that love real in our lives. Father, this morning... My prayer is that you would make that love real in our lives. That worry would be outweighed by wonder. That we would see little things like birds and flowers as pointers to your goodness and your presence amongst us. Lord, keep us from the sin of living in the future 
and pull us into the places where you are present amongst us now. In your name, amen.